This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Star Wars Report. Let's do the show, folks. Come, come, come. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. Uh, pretty hyped about Star Wars these days. It's a true story. Um, can't. <laughs> I'm not gonna deny it. I'm kind of. I'm kind of into it. It's the funny thing about when a Star Wars movie is about to come out, as we've not had this experience time after time in the Disney era of Star Wars, is that it is. It's almost sort of the seasonal, this feeling, this most wonderful time of the year. Not that time of year, Star Wars time of year. And it's the time I'm breaking out, especially with Disney Plus, rewatching all the Star Wars movies. Um, that it, my, my, my fiance, God bless her, is bedridden today because she has uh, just had her wisdom teeth removed. So that was our excuse to sit down and watch, of all things, the Clone Wars movie, because yes, I'm th- that thorough. <laughs> and now Rogue One. We just finished Rogue One. Uh, I'm having a fantastic time. Uh, and it's an interesting... It, it, it's funny to start the show this way, but Rogue One is this sort of almost hidden treasure of Star Wars now that we seem to have already forgotten in the in the hype leading up to it. But it, it's a complex film. And, and some of the, the uh, themes in Rogue One, radicalism, rebellion, those are the ones that I uh, find most intriguing about the story and that we've actually... That, uh, my fiance Savannah most appreciated about the movie, and uh, here's a shameless segue. Uh, my favorite guy to talk to about this kind of stuff is Mr. Thomas Harper. Welcome, sir, back to the Star Wars Report. Hello, Riley, and hello there to all of you. I was a long circle that I went all the way around to bring you back here. Well, but, I appreciate uh, that Rogue One was the hook. You it, know, there are a lot of crummy hooks you could have brought me in on, but that was a really good one. I was thinking of something quite like bringing it, laying down the law. It's <laughs> Army Jack Officer. Thomas as Arthur. long as it's overlaid with sound effects from <laughs> like a monster truck rally. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday <laughs> on the Star Wars report. <laughs> yeah. No, but since um, we are in the middle of this countdown going three times a week, uh, this is the Wednesday show. The Friday show is a little sketchy because that's, uh, well, I'm, that's my promotion date, and it turns out I have to attend it. So <laughs> we're working on the schedule for the Friday show at this time. But um, but we're having a great time talking about Star Wars. And it's interesting, the, there's a lot of news, as always, that's breaking. A few more updates, quotes, interviews uh, that have been coming out, uh, especially with the Rise of Resistance, which is opening tomorrow actually. Um, But I wanted to talk to you about none of that. I wanted to start off by this really cool piece that uh, dropped in Wired today. And I saw a lot of people talking about this on Twitter and stuff. And I thought, who better, especially since we have you on today, uh, uh, Thomas. This is The title is, Ewoks are the most tactically advanced fighting force in Star Wars. Hate them or love them, 
The Ewoks have more strategic chops than any military in the Star Wars galaxy. Bite me. No, that that last part wasn't it. But this is so. This is a column and and a writer that I wasn't familiar with, but that you are. But I just want I get Todd. I just want to get your reaction to this piece. Well, I you. It's interesting you say bite me because they will as uh, <laughs> not only the the best warfighters in the galaxy far far away but also probably in my opinion as a jag officer uh <laughs> among the biggest war criminals i don't know so I, I don't think the helmets that they're drumming on at the end of return of the jedi <laughs> were voluntarily handed over Mm-mm-mm. nor do i think that you're going to find any ewok pow camps if you traipse around endor but no this if you have not read any of the angry staff officer who is the uh the pseudonym of the the uh, National Guard o- Army officer that uh, writes these type of pieces and is the author, author of this piece, you are missing out. He is a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, he has written quite a few pieces like this about everything from Empire to uh, the Battle of Scarif, sort of tactically breaking things down. And he's mm. very, very good. Uh, I think he hits the nail on the head, and he is an equal opportunity shamer of both the Empire mm-hmm. and its sort of blunders across the movies, and in in the Rebellion's shortcomings. Uh, and you know, I'm looking at you, uh, Echo Base, and and that uh, poorly thought out uh, <laughs> yeah. excuse of an escape. So I, I think his his overall conclusion is that the Empire and the Rebellion seem to continually shoot themselves in the foot and, and kind of get get away with a lot of things, while the Ewoks really put to work a lot of actual real world military concepts, whether it be uh, using psychological warfare in terms of the <laughs> the uh, blowing the horn, which is my favorite part of the article, uh, initiating a uh, a complex ambush surrounding all the Imperials and actually drawing them uh, sort of deep into the, uh, into the engagement area to the point where they didn't have a lot of support. So you sort of, is- you see them isolating Imperial troops, you see them isolating ATSTs and using complex traps and whatnot and uh, really saving the day for the rebels. So basically what you're saying is uh, Empire Rebellion, each replete with their own, shall we say, tactical shortcomings. Um, big example being how much the the assault on Hoth was botched, um, <laughs> and um, uh, but but it's 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 kind of perfect uh, execution from a military tactical position. In fact, um, and I'm going to just go straight to the article here. One of the basics of warfare is fire and maneuver, synchronizing all weapon systems and personnel on a close timetable of destruction to pinpoint the enemy's weakness, pin them with fire, and maneuver to strike at an exposed, at an exposed flank or rear. This, um, this involves the application of indirect and direct fires, as well as forces to fix the enemy in one spot and, and uh, others to uh, envelope or exploit the breakthrough. Now, here's the interesting thing, because that sounds to me like a lot of army jargon as the Air Force guy. It, oh, it's, it's dripping with it. <laughs> so what... Uh, the phrase that we that we use in the Air Force world, um, particularly in the form of air power, is and, and, and just to bring in, we use the find, fix, finish, um, yeah. and that that especially in the kind of war on terrorism era, era that that makes sense, and that's how we think in terms of the modern military. But I think this is a good example of like 
and this is where I, it, army field manuals are probably more closely aligned to traditional warfare still than than air force air force is always kind of seen as the nerdier techier we would say more forward looking <laughs> view of warfare we can go back and forth here a little bit but i like i actually like how this this sort of terminology and look at the tactics of the ewoks kind of fits because this is more traditional warfare yeah i i would assume that you're you were disappointed uh or you are continually disappointed watching jedi and not seeing like an ewok drone built out of like sticks <laughs> and branches and operated remotely by wicket from the safety <laughs> listen listen <laughs> from elsewhere in the in the jungle but, sitting too close to home too close to home <laughs> no but they do to, to the the ewok air force's credit uh the angry staff officer points out that they make very good use of this combined arms concept they have close air support in those ewok gliders and they, they use those sort of effectively like they drop rocks but you know, it may not down an ATST, but it distracts them and it allows them potentially to to draw that uh, that armored vehicle into another trap, say a, a trip wire or, or one of those log traps. So, yeah, they're mm-hmm. they may look like teddy bears, but they fight like real warriors. Yeah, you're right. Phase one deception. That's where they like lure everybody out into the field um, in pursuit of uh, <laughs> using C3PO, of course. Um, and then phase two, they basically annihilate a dispersed enemy because they lose. When when you lose concentration of power, that's when you lose um, the battle, essentially. Yep. yep. Um, and then phase three is eat the stormtroopers. Phase three is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, I'll finish out the piece here. In this single engagement, the Ewoks managed to overwhelm and completely defeat a, a technologically superior force simply by using conventional military tactics and principles of multi-domain operations. <laughs> He's literally quoting the field. Um, through synchronization of direct and indirect fire, close air support, combat engineer principles, deception, and my favorite, psychological operations. Massing their forces at a key time and space, they def- they demonstrate their proficiency in land and warfare. So maybe when we see the return of the Ewoks in Rise of Skywalker, you know they'll have just be they'll be that much more advanced. Can you imagine the Ewoks' tactics applied to the Rebellion's use of resources? I'm oh yeah, just, well, they, you know they, there's a void to be filled there with the death of Admiral Akbar and some of the other. Uh, resistance leadership so who mm, better to true. fill it than general wicket they amen amen brother hey can i ask you about this is not on our show notes at all but since we're talking tactics and stuff i actually wanted to ask you about rogue one because mm-hmm. i i hadn't seen it in a long time uh, honestly and and i particularly the way that last battle unfolds i think it might be my favorite battle like tactically speaking mm-hmm. in all of star wars i'm not gonna lie um Particularly the sort of the, the two wave attack, the, the the story concept of the handful of rebels with Cassian that are willing to go in, even though they know it's essentially a suicide mission. And I never really thought about that a lot when I first watched the movie. But upon when you're watching it, you know that, oh, when it's just the handful of them that, you know, Cassian believes Jen uh, about her father, even though he doubts her at first, that's sort of his character journey where he puts his faith in her before the rest of the rebellion does. Of course, let's point out Admiral Raddus being the first. That's what. That's my other favorite little <laughs> moment. It's like, yes, you know what? They're on Scarif. They're attacking. We should go help them. Yes, Admiral. Oh, he's gone. He's already he, he gone. <laughs> um, but tactically speaking, I actually the the whole way that the execution of the 
of a battle that you know you can't win, but you have a specific objective inside it, that's a different dynamic than than we've really seen in Star Wars before. And I actually really liked how you could, if you watch the battle tactically, you have um, Gold Squadron and you have Blue Squadron, each of their specific tactical roles, and of course, I was appre- mm-hmm. I knew you'd appreciate the the Y wings bombing role, <laughs> but <laughs> essentially, the day, you mean <laughs> yeah, essentially, basically, because like Blue Squadron, while they they slip just enough X wings through before the shield closes to where they can provide the air support needed just to last long enough uh, to to make it work, and I just I don't know, I just wanted to kind of. Uh, reminisce maybe a little bit on Rogue One since they literally just finished watching it and I love the way that battle unfolds. Rogue One is fantastic. That That is, bar- other than I would say the Battle of Endor, particularly the space battle, it's it's my favorite uh, battle scene in, in any of the movies. And, and I'm not knocking the others. I'm certainly not knocking the Battle of Hoth. But uh, it just gets my motor running every time i watch it and i love that you've got blue squadron with their specific tactical objective which is get to the surface and provide close air support uh and uh engage sort of the um the effective close air support of the empire to neutralize it and you you see that play out with the u-wing and i just like Mm. love the scene where they're uh they're taking on those atacts uh Mm. with the little side mounted ion cannon on the u-wing um and there's there will never be any scene better than an X-wing uh, dropping ordnance on an armored vehicle uh, to save a group of rebel troops. That's just amazing. But in particular, I really like the space scene, uh, and I've written about this and, and presented in part about this at Celebration in the past because it is a really great demonstration of how the rebels use their particular they they turn their fleet weaknesses to an advantage and it really mirrors how uh, the u.s navy fought in world war ii switching from this big you know battleship capital ship focused uh strategy where you just came in with the biggest guns and blew each other to pieces Mm. and had last man standing to these fast attack carrier groups where instead of big guns you get this this envelope of fighter protection yeah uh and you have those fighters that are able to strike the enemy from a distance. And that's where you see the, the X-Wings, those Y-Wings come in. Uh, it's not until toward the end of the, the battle above Scarif that you really see Radis say, hey, let's, let's go in and start attacking those Star Destroyers head on. He knew full well that they didn't have the firepower to go toe-to-toe with those two Star Destroyers. And so he's strategically using what he does have to his advantage and it really works out and pays off in spades. Yeah. Well, at that close range, um, they won't be able to last long against uh, those star destroyers. That is a tactical truth in star Wars. 100%. (laughs) And also, but they will last longer than they will against that death star. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I'm literally, we we, now all I have is the original trilogy sequel trilogy as I'm building back up and I'm having a blast rewatching. No, that's a really good point. Cause I do like, I, I, I love the historical parallels of the, the the idea of the carrier group, where you do have your capital ship, but that's not mm-hmm. that's not your primary projection of power, which has been the naval tradition, you know, for centuries before. Was oh, yeah. your 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 armada was literally nothing but capital ships, but in the age of of air power, um, it that totally tactically changes, and it's sort of a full extension of the battle in Yavin and then Return of the Jedi of the Battle of Endor too. So it'll be really interesting to see how the the kinds of battles that we will see in 
Rise of Skywalker as well, because there's some pretty cool opportunities to, I mean, the only glimpses we have so far are like Star Destroyers in atmosphere, but I can't wait to see what, how that plays out. Um, yeah. Kind of reminds me of that. There's this one episode of Battlestar Galactica where it jumps in atmosphere. Ah, uh, that's so freaking cool. <laughs> um, all right. So all right, enough nerdy battle talk. Let's actually get into some of the Star Wars news we have. So um, Rise of the Resistance. Um, they just had all their press previews today. Um, I lost my invite in the mail somewhere. No, <laughs> no. Actually, I shouldn't say anything. I'm I'm spoiled. We are actually uh, actually driving down uh, next weekend um, as a little Christmas trip to Disney, and part of that's going to be experiencing Rise of the Resistance. But the first reviews are in um, EW. Actually, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. They uh, break down the some of the early reaction. Have you been tracking um, some of the the press and images that have been coming out today, Thomas? I I was and I stopped because I was mm. getting so excited and unlike you I have to wait till the end of January to go and it was just it was bubbling over in me as I read great review after great review and and I'll tell you what I kind of stopped short too because a lot of the stuff I was seeing um, like on YouTube and stuff they're already full like ride POV videos popping up and like I actually do want to experience the the full ride myself like. You know, I don't know that I care about like the plot of the ride or something, but I just don't want to see exactly everything that happens. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but it is they. It's confirmed. It's an, a whopping eighteen minutes long from start to finish. That makes they, it the longest ride in any any Disney park. It does. If I'm not mistaken. I, I'm pretty sure it does, which is crazy. Certainly way up there. But it has a lot of the. Uh, I mean, to no surprise, the original actors from. Uh, the sequel trilogy, Oscar Isaac, Daisy Ridley, um, and and so it's it's here's a here's a quote from the Orange County Register: "Quote uh, Rise of the Resistance will leave you wondering again and again how Walt Disney Imagineering pulled off one visual illusion after another, each scene somehow outdoing the last. Their new Star Wars attraction redefines what e t- what e ticket stands for: extraordinary." Um, everywhere you look is Star Wars. The entire interaction or attraction is a 360 scene out of a movie. It feels like you're really on a Star Destroyer in outer space. The illusion is complete. The Imagineering has recreated the look and feel of the Star Destroyer right down to the droid ports where the astromechs can plug into the ship. And you can reach out and touch it all. And if you're like me, you'll find yourself wanting to linger in each new space as you encounter that you encounter in Rise of the Resistance. So the overwhelming positive reviews, like this is the this is the promised flagship. Um, some would some would say completion, others would say redemption of Galaxy's Edge. Um, and I, th- it's important to note that I think folks that are there right now, some it you know, including the some of these media outlets are not folks that were ready to just jump on the Disney bandwagon, so to speak, and wave the Galaxy's Edge flag. I think there were a lot of people that walked in with checked expectations that would have been unsurprised if it did not live up to the lofty expectations and the lofty billing that had been set. So for them to come out, some of those outlets, particularly ones in Florida that that cover Disney pretty regularly, Mm. and come out with that sort of opinion, I think that says a lot. Yeah, yeah, it does, and I think um, here's here's a little excerpt. Here's a good example of that because while it's it's pretty easy in the in the fan world, especially when you're talking about Disney specific coverage. I should know this from doing the Mouse and Castle podcast for the last year. A lot of the fan outlets are 
are exactly that. They're big fans of it. So like, I know as a big Star Wars fan, I'm going to probably love it regardless because it's a Disney ride at Star Wars. But like compared to other rides and compared to like the average park goer, that's important. And the, even the CNN one, they have some nuance to it. Um, they say, and I quote, um, uh, if the mission was to have great fun, yes, uh, I'm a Star Wars super fan and uh, the mission was accomplished. And as impressed as I was, I only wish the peril level reached a higher point. I recall being actually scared at Universal's uh, Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey, and I'm not at all invested in that franchise. But in my opinion, Rise is a long-sustained level of joy and a technological marvel that beats any other attraction in the park in both of those ways. So again, on the technological level and the sort of sustained story experience, uh, maybe not the the highest thrill level if if that's your kind of experience but they are saying just at a technological story experience this is what it's promised to be um which i which i'm excited about like i i it sounds like a mission accomplished i can't wait we'll we will actually we'll we'll give my very biased opinion i'll i will admit i'm going to love this ride but uh <laughs> when i actually do it um but uh but yeah no that's cool and some other uh, a couple other quick hits here and then we have some feedback from you guys uh as well because there's, there's this ongoing c-3po debate uh that, that we've been having on the show um uh but we're actually we, we've there's a little bit more on like anakin's lightsaber and some other stuff um and and you guys have been emailing a lot so i'm really excited to get to that but i do want to hit a couple other new stories uh rapid fire style Jedi Temple Challenge. Star Wars Jedi Temple Challenge is coming to Disney+. Plus. It's the first ever live-action, uh, unscripted Star Wars show ever, uh, hosted by none other than Jar Jar Binks actor Ahmed Bess. Your reaction, Thomas? <laughs> Does technology exist that can de-age me to whatever <laughs> range they're looking for? Because otherwise I'll be begging them to allow somebody in their 30s to participate <laughs> i'll accept a handicap I'll, I'll i'll play on my knees so that i'm slowed considerably <laughs> I, I think it's amazing i think this is this is really really a it's a stretch we've never seen anything like this I mean, no there's not a marvel superheroes game show or something like that and the way it has been described seems like it evokes the very best from some of the game shows that I grew up with as a kid, like Legends mm. of the Hidden Temple, yep. uh, Guts, that sort of thing. And to mash <laughs> it with Star Wars just sounds phenomenal. I, my comment was, I think the, the yeah, I've got an 18-month-old daughter. The stereotypical dad kind of pushes their kid into sports. <laughs> I will be hoping that this game show exists a few years from now, and I will absolutely be pushing my daughter directly into that. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Quote from um, Lucasfilm Senior Director of Online Content. This is definitely a kids game show like no other. Their various challenges will um, test a Padawan's connection to the Force in three locations, a Force planet, on board a Jedi Star Cruiser, and inside a Jedi Temple, immersing them and the audience in a fun, humorous, exciting competition. Um, it's cool to see them It's uh, go this this route for Disney Plus, too. I mean, it's obviously targeted, targeted at kids, which is obviously a recognition of the impact that uh, Jar Jar Binks has by selecting Ahmed Best. Um, talk about full circle. Yeah. Um, where he's being not only just kind of recognized as, as, as what his role as Jar Jar is, but it doesn't get much bigger than like hiring him to do your Disney Plus Star Wars kids show. It's a huge vote of confidence. I love it. 
Yeah, and he's and also he's a great stage entertainer and has a lot of that experience. I think if you if you're not if you don't know much about the prequels or behind the scenes or stuff, he's he's had a a continued successful career on stage uh, in a number of productions and in stunt. He was in uh, a mark. He's like a bit of a martial arts dude dancer. He's in stomp, uh, so he has a lot of that. I think that physicality that he can actually bring into the role in a way that isn't just oh yeah it's jar jar um doing it so i actually i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, check out some of these episodes when they when they debut um which will be a lot of fun it's it's really cool it's it's obviously experimental and and we'll see if it works it's 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 outside of what you would expect from star wars but hey if they can do this show that means they can bring detours back i'm just saying (laughs) um that's a thing that that (laughs) if it ever comes back that's that'll be the ultimate is Star Wars will be complete. <laughs> I don't care about any future movies or anything like that. Star Wars, the franchise, can be considered complete when Seth Green's Star Wars Detours returns. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. Never tell me the odds. That's right, and this episode of the Star Wars Report podcast is brought to you by the fine folks over at the Fan Dummies podcast. They air twice a week, every Monday and Thursday, covering everything in the world of geekdom. Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Walking Dead, Star Trek. Yep, that's right. Uh, They're covering all of it. They've got episodes on Supernatural, The Dark Crystal, Stranger Things, and more. They recently debuted uh, their episode um, preparing for Rise of Skywalker, so you should definitely check that out as they talk about the movies to watch, the order to watch, the the must-consume pieces of Star Wars content as we're leading up to the Rise of Skywalker. So you can check out that episode and more in their podcast feed, fandummies.com, fandummies.com. And we do thank the Fandummies podcast for supporting the Star Wars Report podcast. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, a little bit of feedback from you guys. Um, from Andrew, uh, uh, Andrew from Grand Rapids says, I've been, I'm watching Attack of the Clones, and I thought, based on comments in the Clone Wars, Jango was not a true Mandalorian. Uh, and I believe Pre is the one who said that. Yes, he is. Uh, based on the Mandalorian, maybe we're seeing that confirmed because they talk of how true Mandalorians never remove their helmets in the presence of others. The only thing that doesn't support is the fact that uh, Pre had his helmet off, as did Bo-Katan in the Clone Wars. Just something I'm interested to see where the Mandalorian goes when it comes to building more about the culture behind the Mandos. Keep up the great show, Andrew from Grand Rapids. Now, it is an interesting... because. They're alluding to a lot of Mandalorian culture, but there are inconsistencies with what we've seen with the culture portrayed in in the Clone Wars. Now, inconsistencies don't mean they're the same Mandalorian culture. Do you think there are different factions that have different codes? Is that something they'll dig into, uh, do you think, Thomas? I Yeah, absolutely. I think if Filoni has proven anything over the time in the Clone Wars and, and what he's learned from George Lucas, it's don't accept at face value what you've seen on screen before as being the entirety of the universe, right? So uh, we've certainly seen the Clone Wars and Rebels expand greatly on what uh, the Mandalorian culture is as we know it, and I would I would argue this this particular tribe might be like an orthodox strain of Mandalorians, right? We see segments of of religions in the real world that are like that. They they have different practices. They are part of the same body, but they interpret things differently and and practice things uh, you know differently day to day. And that's that could be exactly what this is. Yeah, it is, and I think what 
the Clone Wars did a good job of is actually describing different factions within Mandalorians with different practices that within the Clone Wars. You had the mm-hmm. the the mainstream pacifist revolution that uh, had taken over the main government, but then you had you know Death Watch, the splinter group that adhered to the old Mandalorian ways, which. To me, I remember at the time, back when like the biggest debates we had amongst fandom was like Karen Travis and the Clone Wars. <laughs> remember those days? <laughs> um, but like I do remember um, that that for the the Mandalorians in in the Clone Wars, uh, there were a lot of com- complaints about them. There's like, come on, they can't be fat pacifists. This is a ridiculous story. Like guys, if you look at the 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 thread of the story here, is that the the pacifism is this like exception to the history and that's why you have this radical violent group like that's an interesting story that fits perfectly well with the history and understanding of other mandalorians historically speaking yeah but and we you know. we haven't even se- we've seen an expansion and we haven't seen certainly all of mandalorian space and the mandalorians that occupy that space because you've got we've seen what mandalore concord dawn Mm-hmm. Uh, Concordia. Yep. So we've seen slices of this society. Um, we could be dealing with a segment of that society that was similarly affected. I, it sounds like the Great Purge hit everybody yeah. in that sector. Um, they just may have responded to it differently and, and uh, maybe doing their own thing. Yeah. No, I do love how the, in Mandalorian they've alluded to this Great Purge. Like, I don't know exactly what it means, because um, uh, uh, we usually think of Jedi when we think of a great purge, but I love the idea sure. of the Empire hunting down all the Mandalorian cultures because it represented a threat to the Empire, just as much as the Jedi or rebels or, you know, even the Separatists represented an enemy to the Empire. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Hey, we got I- a, a, another email from Leo. Um now we're talking about Anakin's lightsaber. He says, uh, why does Disney Star Wars trilogy keep changing its mind about the significance of Anakin's lightsaber? Now, this is a response I didn't put in the show notes, Thomas, but they just put, um, I, I was talking about uh, last week and on Monday's episode about the significance of using Leia's theme in some of the uh, promotional material. And now in some of the recent TV spots, we're actually seeing our first shot of Leia holding Luke's lightsaber Mm-hmm. You know, literally with the voiceover of like, um, you know, a thousand generations live in you now. It's it's this sort of very unsubtle, not so subtle way of 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 talking about the sort of passing of the torch of the lightsaber. And I was talking about how much I'm a big fan of this theme, um, but it, it kind of raises an interesting point from Leo. Um, in the Force Awakens, it's supposed to be this important relic that helped Rey connect to the broader world of the Force. Mm-hmm. In the Last Jedi, it was this sort of piece of junk that Luke didn't care about. Uh, this is again from Leo's email um, that Luke didn't uh, care as much about until uh, Kylo and Rey destroyed it. But now in Episode Nine, it's repaired and sort of the torch for Leia to pass on to Rey. And and we are seeing that actually a recent poster that debuted, I think yesterday. You actually have our first kind of better look at the repaired lightsaber. Um, back to Leo's email, he says, "I just don't get it. Um, Anakin only used the." lightsaber uh, for the events of revenge of the sith not even the entire prequel trilogy or his entire career in the events of the final installment luke himself uses it only briefly a few times so uh what gives what makes it so important and uh why is it they can't seem to make up their mind about what the role of this lightsaber is 
Um, not for nothing, I think, and this is, again, Leo, uh, it's not appropriate for her to be wielding Anakin's weapon in the first place because she has no connection to him that we know of, of course. Um, with this newly broken saber, she had a perfect opportunity to make her own, as Luke did, um, keeping the weapon uh, of another warrior is a distinctly Sith characteristic, at least in my experience. Love to get your thoughts on this, um, if you have some free time to discuss, and thanks for the newsletter. And that's right, um, I was I was writing about this in our newsletter that you should sign up and uh, at starsreport.com slash mailing list. Shameless plug. Uh, because <laughs> on the non-show days, there's so much Star Wars, I'm still writing about it. So um, I'm, I'm writing down some of my thoughts throughout the weeks as well. So Leo was uh, talking about one of the newsletters. I, I was kind of breaking down this concept as well. And I think he brings an interesting point. And I actually, I responded uh, to Leo, but I also wanted to bring up my response and then get your take, Thomas. Um, for me, and you know what? I, I say that. Uh, actually, let me get your response first because I'm going to actually pull up my email to him here because I don't want to uh, uh, do a disservice to to Leo because I think he brings up mm-hmm. some interesting points. Is it a relic? Is it something to be forgotten? Is it a Sith-like trait to keep another's weapon or is it not giving Rey a proper opportunity to become come into her own as a Jedi to build her own lightsaber? Wouldn't that be the the segue if if Dark Ray is an actual thing and she she made that leap? It's like a gateway drug that led her <laughs> right down the dark path. <laughs> I actually think so. Leo raises some really good points. Uh, I, I like interesting, thought provoking, like panel type points that we could talk for a while about. But I, I actually don't think that there's a disconnect in how the the lightsaber is treated thematically. Okay, because if you go back. I think there's a very, very beautiful parallel here between the the sequel trilogy, the original trilogy, and the prequels. When Luke gets the lightsaber from Obi Wan, it is he he is almost mirroring, or Ray almost mirrors this sort of like uh, attachment to it. I, I get that she she sort of rejects it at first after the Force vision, but by the 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 events of the Last Jedi, she is. It's this symbol, right? It's this symbol of another warrior, this this greatness, uh, these these uh, ideals and whatnot uh, that that she covets, and, and this image that she has of what she's supposed to be or what Luke is. In the same way that Luke, when he took the lightsaber, uh, you know, had his own opinions about the Jedi Order and and uh, Anakin and and whatnot. And it's not until Luke learns that painful lesson and actually loses that lightsaber uh, there at Cloud City that he's finally pushed to to take the next big step towards becoming an an actual Jedi, constructing his own lightsaber and that sort of thing. And I think that beautifully parallels what happens in The Last Jedi. Luke has moved on from that lightsaber. That lightsaber is is a literal relic of the past to him because mm. he has moved on from it. He's sort of the the samurai that's put down his sword. You don't even see him uh, wielding his his green lightsaber in the movie, and that's for good reason because his character has moved past that. But for Rey, there's still this connection. That's why she chases it down. And it's not until the, that lightsaber is broken apart uh, on the bridge of Snoke's ship there, the supremacy, that... Ray is really set up to make this leap, and you see the first step uh, on that journey there at the end when she's moving rocks and whatnot. Mm. Uh, but that's sort of symbolically to me that same Cloud City moment where she finally makes a turn. 
I always, I, you, wow, that's that's quite profound because you you make a really good point of Luke's view of this as a relic now, and he went through that same experience, that same um, carrying his father's weapon and then building, you know, in that famous cutscene from Return of the Jedi that we saw in the Blu-rays, building his own um, as he's born as a true Jedi, like he's not a true Jedi in Empire Strikes Back when he faces Vader with his, with, you know, his father's sword. And no. it, it does create this story opportunity. And, and, and what I wrote back to Leo and, and what I thought I could bring to the discussion is I think there is more to Luke Saber in this story than we know yet. I'm mm-hmm. confident that it is, it is at the centerpiece. Exactly where they go with it is what remains to be seen. But I see it as a sort of representation of the balance of the force sort of in the way that vader was redeemed returning him to the status as anakin bringing balance to the force at the end at return of the jedi anakin's lightsaber to me um represents the force in a state of balance or in a certain way it's it's vader redeemed it's anakin's lightsaber anakin's mm-hmm. legacy and and that kind of brings forward if you're if if that is a relic of the past that has some kind of significance to this story for Ray, um, I, I think that that's the opportunity right there to have it uh, like physically represent that balance of the force, that, that true what the Jedi Order should be, which I think is represented in Vader's redemption. Luke, Luke redeeming his father is, a I think, a fulfillment of what Jedi philosophy should be and uh and and where they went astray and i love it's a very beautiful picture and i think that's really a great opportunity in the rise of skywalker to use this as a physical relic a physical representation of what redemption and balance of the force um really could mean in star wars now to your point leo i think that you you raise a really good point is that it shouldn't i think if it's just like and she claims Anakin's legacy. I am now the Skywalker. I am now Anakin Skywalker. I now use his weapon and to ink on the mantle of the old Jedi Order. I think that discounts both what the prequels say about the Jedi Order and, frankly, what the Last Jedi um, points out about the failures of the Jedi Order. And so, I think that there's just an opportunity to make that lightsaber a part of the journey to get there. But honestly, my reaction after reading Lee's email, I, I can very much sympathize with the perspective of, I think, I hope that Ray is given a chance to build her own lightsaber and, and, and carve her own path forward. I threw a lot at you there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, fa- I mean, that's, um, that's some deep, fascinating stuff. I, I agree, I, I think, but in some ways, I think her, if it's a reconstruction of the lightsaber that we're looking at that process. Cause that thing was mm, yeah. destroyed. I mean, if you, you see a brief glimpse of it there at the end of the last Jedi and that thing was mangled. Yeah. I don't know what I, I'm presuming the Kyber crystal didn't break. Cause that probably would have destroyed the ship yeah. or, or caused a lot more destruction than we saw. But, um, you know, I think there's going to have been some stuff off screen potentially that we'll we'll see in later stories, maybe not on the the big screen, um, about that process to to rebuild it, repair it, that sort of thing. And I think it's a parallel to 
Kylo sort of reforging his helmet, this idea that you can mm. take something broken and make not not make it again, but make something new out of it. And I even think, if it retains the same form. And I think that's where the greatest opportunity lies: is to make yeah. something something new that is a fulfillment of of where the the Jedi Order maybe came up short, um, and that is a manifestation of vader's redemption because i think bringing vader's redemption or the theme of redemption into this film i think is is just necessary from a thematic perspective there's a lot of ways the rise of skywalker could go but i think in really to get the story right thematically that idea of redemption's at the core i don't know how that plays out i'm really interested to see but uh, i'll be really interested just to see it and I, I just sent you a link we'll have it also in the show notes of the australian poster that's what i was i just seen it on uh on twitter so you can kind of see this it's literally charred and repaired it has a sort of like a bolted on uh mm-hmm. ring to kind of repair it in the midst it's fascinating that's like the i mean if if that's uh i, I would expect that's how she repaired it that's the total and complete ray way of repairing something like i i love that <laughs> it looks like she just took a piece off of her staff and just like yeah uh, well yeah that or she's like rummaging through a star destroyer and she's like this will work and it's like completely fitting with her character <laughs> oh my gosh oh my god all right guys hey we're almost ready to uh, wrap up another episode of the Star Wars Report. Um, big shout out to our other sponsor today, uh, Audible. If you're into Star Wars audiobooks, I uh, just want to encourage you to check out audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport and get yourself a free Star Wars audiobook. Uh, they've got a huge selection. Uh, what's currently trending? Re- uh, what is it? Rebels Reborn? Resistance Reborn. Resistance. I don't know why I've <laughs> talked about it like the last two weeks, but um, they've just dropped it um, and, and a whole bunch of great uh, Star Wars audiobooks, both from the old uh, Expanded Universe Legends canon uh, and, of course, all the recent Disney uh uh, publishing so uh, especially with the journey to the rise of skywalker uh, some of the novels coming out they've got some great productions coming to audible.com uh, so check it out audibletrial.com slash star wars report and we do thank audible for supporting the star wars report podcast now you might be wondering <laughs> what what on earth are you playing riley why are you playing this like weird 80s hip-hop music it might be my favorite version of you have Nub. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, I just dug in, I, I dug into my old Dropbox account because um, I was looking for some files for the show and I've totally forgot all these, the, these old drops and music and segments from the show from like five years ago. And I found the Ewok Celebration Club mix and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> uh, Mr. Thomas Harper, thanks as always for coming on. Uh, tell people where they can find you on the internet, uh, your ongoing thoughts on the galaxy far, far away. You can engage with me on Twitter at Thomas L. Harper. And if you like to read more analysis about Star Wars from a legal perspective, you can find my blogs on thelegalgeeks.com. And there's actually a brand new one up today oh. talking about whether the Mandalorian, seen in The Mandalorian, uh, could claim refugee status in the galaxy far, far away. Oh, I did see that pop up on Twitter. Uh, yeah, The Legal Geeks. We'll have a link to that so you can check it out. Uh, the answer is no, they don't. <laughs> like, well, wait, how do you define human rights? Is this, are we talking like UN charter human rights, like right to housing and high-speed internet? Well, we're talking the 
in this particular article the U.S. law, the Immigration and Nationality Nationality Act. I will oh. tell you, I don't think the Mandalorians are quite the type to ask for help from anybody, much less <laughs> the New Republic, who arguably abandoned them uh, during the Galactic Civil War after they stuck their necks out um, early yeah. on before the Death Star was destroyed. So mm. that's another issue. But I, you can engage with me on Twitter. I will talk your ear off about that stuff (laughs) i love it we'll have a link to it and yes there's a baby yoda gif in the article so there you go there you go hey there should be you can follow the uh, star wars report it's just at star wars report on twitter uh you and of course star wars report on facebook you also can email us like leo did uh star wars report at gmail.com big shout out and thank you to our uh all of our supporters at patreon i encourage you to join us uh and support the show and get some sweet bonus content our weekly rogue transmissions uh, bonus podcast is available right there at patreon.com slash star wars report uh this week i just actually put out an episode dedicated to the rise of resistance opening and kind of breaking down the journey of this last year of galaxy's edge and how we finally are kind of getting to our moment of completion so if you're interested in that you can check it out a bonus podcast available exclusively at patreon.com slash star wars report uh all the things we talked about are in the show notes for this episode and uh you can follow, uh, last little shout out you can follow me on uh twitter and instagram it's just at the riley guy r-i-l-e-y i'm posting there all the time especially instagram that's my favorite place to hang out these days but uh Follow me there if you want to chat between the shows. There's so many shout-outs. Uh, and uh, not to forget, last little bit, um, we have so many plugs and stuff going on these days. But uh, seriously, we have, uh, I, I forgot to mention at the top of the show, but uh, fill out our 2019 listener survey. We're looking at how to improve the show going into the new year. Ten simple questions. You can fill it out at starwarsreport.com slash survey. Super easy Google form. I've already gotten some great feedback from you guys on the segments you like, you don't like. Um, and, and we need all of it that we can get. So, um, starsreport.com slash survey. That's going to do it for this episode of the Star Wars Report podcast. Until next time, yubby up, Commander. I mean, come on. Don't tell that me you weren't chair dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard that one? I was before? sad when you turned it off. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the best part about this is it's a seven minute song that has <laughs> a disco it has a disco interlude. Let me find it. It's right here. <laughs> the intermission. <laughs> when your Ewok song needs to give you a break. <laughs> That's oh my great. god, that's that's Miko. That's an old um like eighties remix that uh like people know the Christmas album, but they, Yeah. You know, I sh- I that's guess I should cute. probably be I I might start interspersing as we're getting closer. I need to use the Miko <laughs> Christmas stuff. <laughs> All right, let me shut up the recorder here. Thomas, that's-